These Enigma episodes have been supported by the Economic and Social Research Council, or ESRC, as part of their annual Festival of Social Science. This festival celebrates the amazing research and advancements of our best and brightest scientists. And this year, almost 500 events are happening all over the country from Saturday the 2nd through to Saturday the 9th of November 2019. You can check out the official hashtag, ESRC Festival, on Twitter. And you might even find that some of the events are in the news. Case S01. E13. Enigma, part one of three. This miniseries is special. The story of Enigma, at least as it's told in this country, the UK, is often incomplete. On the one hand, that's not such a surprise. Enigma has involved numerous decades, dozens of countries and thousands of people. But on the other hand, the story as it has been told here has still suffered from some skewing. In the UK, the cracking of the Enigma Code is a legend, a source of ineffable national pride, and when told in movies and history books, one character always comes to the fore. Alan Turing. This is the British genius whose incandescent brilliance did not merely crack the Enigma cipher in piecemeal or in intermittent bursts, but comprehensively crushed it on an industrial scale. Such is his stature that his face and name are on British banknotes, buildings, institutes, monuments and more. Turing has become a byword for extraordinary intellectual ability. Even the devastating miscarriage of justice that repaid him so poorly for his incredible loyalty is well documented. So what is missing in all of these stories? Well, most of them start largely not at the beginning, often not even in the middle really, but instead usually towards the very end. And plenty of them never look further afield than the leafy, quiet grounds of Bletchley Park. To look only at the story of Turing is to look only at the final mile of a marathon that started all those decades earlier across thousands of tempestuous miles of war-torn Europe. Enigma is the story of a fast-changing, secretive encryption system, arguably the most advanced mechanical cipher ever invented by that point. It is the story of bitter jealousy leading to the selling of state secrets. It is the story of impoverished scientists striving to achieve the impossible, all while the dragon of war breathed over the borders, threatening to consume everything in its path. Enigma is stolen manuals, extraordinary breakthroughs, building replica machines on minuscule budgets, smuggling, spying, stark, breathtaking nerve of a whole range of people, many of whom died or were executed as war consumed entire swathes of Europe. And without all of this coming first, Turing's task would almost certainly have been simply impossible. Or at best, it would have been so near impossible that he would have had no chance of completing it before the war came to an end in some other way instead. In reality, far from doing it all himself, Turing and his team were handed a gift basket of breakthroughs and advances and insights. And yet it is those first gruelling miles of that marathon and the people who effectively ran them through grave danger across the gulfs of seas and lands 
that are so often forgotten. In this mini-series, then, we go back to the beginning of Enigma, even before Enigma, so that we can see the ashes from which this cryptographic titan rose. In the second episode, as war ferments, we crisscross Europe through the 1920s all the way to 1937, following a handful of extraordinary people as they converge and part ways, each trying to navigate and survive the dark turmoil of war. And in the final episode, we pick back up in 1938. Only then do we finally turn to Bletchley Park and Alan Turing, and then we cast a last eye over the fate of those other, less well-known figures who also played such pivotal roles in cracking Enigma. Welcome to Enclair, an archive of forensic linguistics, literary detection and language mysteries. You can find case notes about this episode, including credits, acknowledgements and links to further reading at the blog. The web address is given at the end of this episode. And if you get a moment, leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts from. Our story begins deep in the shadows of prehistory, as civilizations were just starting chaotically to form and, more importantly, to clash. As hierarchies emerged, they brought with them concepts like royalty, kingdoms, trade, war. But power, commerce and military superiority all rely for their success on keeping secrets. After all, sending a regiment of soldiers to loot a neighbouring kingdom's wealthy village requires covert reconnaissance, careful planning and disciplined execution. Similarly, striking a trade deal with that same neighbouring kingdom is more difficult if they know in detail everything about your kingdom's assets and liabilities. And keeping power consolidated in one figure, one monarch, one emperor, one tyrant, requires having access to the best and latest intelligence. It is vital to know who is loyal to whom, what their weaknesses are, whether they are amassing secret forces and plotting to seize power. But one does not then want to let that self-same precious intelligence leak to others. The trouble is, no matter how trustworthy a messenger, a courier, a soldier, everyone is susceptible to tiredness, to errors of judgement, alcohol, bribery, torture. However, the person who does not know the secret cannot reveal it. Thus, all those thousands of years ago, as the need to communicate precious intelligence in safety grew, this secrecy became the mother of codes, and ever since, leaders and royals, magnates and masters have been disguising their communications as a way to protect, defend and govern their empires, both large and small. And from there, the use of codes has bled into every part of our lives, encoded letters, secret classifieds ads, messages hidden in music, art and literature, plot devices in fiction and film, even just the way that parents talk to each other in front of their children when they would rather not be understood. But no sooner had someone invented codes than someone else who couldn't stand being in the dark invented code breaking. And almost immediately, this turned into a pitched battle. The earliest attempts at codes, mere letter shuffling or simple substitutions, were quickly cracked by these primitive cryptanalysts. The codemakers responded with more complex codes, and the code breakers started to develop decryption principles, attack patterns, and methodological rubrics. Back and forth the battle raged, one side endeavouring to bamboozle the other with ever more complex, opaque-seeming nonsense, 
and the other side striving not merely to solve the mystery, but to do so as efficiently as possible. In the words of Simon Singh, author of The Codebook, Codebreakers are linguistic alchemists, a mystical tribe attempting to conjure sensible words out of meaningless symbols. The history of codes and ciphers is the story of the centuries-old battle between codemakers and codebreakers, an intellectual arms race that has had a dramatic impact on the course of history. The development of codes can be viewed as an evolutionary struggle. A code is constantly under attack from codebreakers. When the codebreakers have developed a new weapon that reveals a code's weakness, then the code is no longer useful. In turn, this new code thrives only until codebreakers identify its weakness, and so on. So far, I've used a lot of terminology, and actually, I've been playing a little loose with it. But if you're going to enjoy this case properly, and cases like this, it's useful to have a handle on the major terms and their meanings. So we'll start with a bigger concept. The study of this field, in general, is called cryptology. So crypt, meaning hidden, and ology is the study or the signs of something. But you can study and specialise in cryptography. So there's a G in there, and I'll come back to that in a minute. This is the methods and means of encrypting and hiding. Thus, you would be a codemaker. Or you can study cryptanalysis. This is the means and methods of decrypting and revealing. As such, you would be a codebreaker. If it helps to remember, cryptography, that G that I mentioned, for generating codes and ciphers, cryptanalyst, A, for attacking codes and ciphers. Now, creating Enigma will have taken plenty of cryptographers, that is, codemakers, people who generate codes, and cracking it took stupendous amounts of cryptanalysts or codebreakers attacking the code. Some argue that cryptanalysis, code breaking, is harder than cryptography, code making. And there may be some truth to this, but creating a completely unassailable code in the first place is also not easy, as this story will show. Another pair of terms that often get used interchangeably, and I've done that a little bit in this episode so far, but they actually have very specific meanings, are the words code and cipher. A code is actually something that you replace a full word or phrase with, so we have code names for agents, cryptonyms, like 007 in the James Bond franchise, 007 is his cryptonym. We have codenames for projects like Operation Treadstone in the Jason Bourne series of novels and movies. And these cryptonyms, these codenames, for military installations, operations, assets, projects, manoeuvres, whatever it is, they all basically stand in as a secret or minimally known way of referring to that person, that place or that thing. And of course we have code words and code phrases as a means of establishing authenticity or passing on information. So let's say you and I are spies. We've been instructed to rendezvous and we're trying to establish each other's identity. I might be instructed to arrive carrying a copy of, let's say, Rolling Stones magazine rolled up under my left arm. I might expect you to be wearing a New York cap and to be apparently talking on a phone. Upon each of us seeing a person who fits these visual requirements, I might attempt to light a cigarette three times and then give up in apparent disgust when my lighter doesn't seem to work. You might then approach to offer your own lighter, and I might then casually say to you, The darkness was rock music's greatest tragedy. In turn, I will wait for you to respond with, Hawkins should have stuck to pedicures. Or it might be something more dynamic. I might be instructed to say five natural-sounding words, 
And for each word I say, you might have to produce words starting with the same letters of the alphabet. So if I say, what a day for this, you might reply, we are definitely forgetting Tuesday. So W-A-D-F-T. And then you reply with words that start with the same letters. That one's unlikely, though. It's far more cognitively taxing and it's less likely to look or even sound natural. You're probably going to struggle for a few moments whilst you figure something out. And the thing is, 99% of espionage is being as boring and as unremarkable as humanly possible. Think of the most unspy-like person you know. They are much more likely to be a spy than someone who walks around looking like James Bond all the time. Out in the field, however, when your life could be at risk if you put your trust in the wrong person, there is a crucial cost-benefit analysis to be made. Espionage, by its very nature, involves layer upon layer upon layer of deception. Everyone is already pretending to be someone or something that they're not. Spies are trying to look like ordinary people all the time. Imposters, who are trying to infiltrate your organisation and networks, are attempting to look like friendly spies, who are attempting to look like ordinary people. So, you want to ensure true positives and true negatives in your system of validation. So you want the right people to be able to validate themselves because the system is replicable, and you want the wrong ones to be unable to validate themselves because your system is rigorous. You don't want false positives, that is, imposters getting in because the system is too replicable, basically too easy. And you don't want false negatives where the people who are in fact your friends are getting shut out because the system is too rigorous, it's too difficult. Now, ordinarily, if your linguistic phrase is more complex, if there's a dynamic element to it, if there is a higher level of security, this tends to bring with it a higher level of cognitive effort, or worse, much worse in espionage, a greater degree of obviousness, where some bystander will think, that was weird, and it will stick in their mind. And more to the point, any code phrase, or the key to producing an acceptable code phrase, can be intercepted anyway, or tortured out of a captured agent or even inferred if the agency's protocols are not what they ought to be. And so this makes code phrase validation alone, by modern standards, a pretty dicey means of fully and confidently determining the veracity of someone's identity. So, like you can't walk into GCHQ or the Pentagon through a single door with a single swipe card, similarly, if you want to establish who someone is, especially on a critical mission, you generally want to take quite a few more steps than just producing a single short sentence, which they then produce a second appropriate part to. So modern espionage and cognate occupations, and there are cognate occupations, amazingly enough, they rely much more heavily on technological means nowadays. So if you visually check out with your New York cap, and then you behaviorally check out by lending me your cigarette lighter, and then you even linguistically check out because you produce the correct passphrase, I might then go on to another stage of validation that involves me handing you an innocent-looking device. It might be something that looks like an e-reader, or a phone, or a pen, or a folder, or a lighter. And that will swiftly take a biometric reading. It might scan your fingertips, or your eyeballs, or the patterns of veins in your hand, or whatever. This will then relay the information back to your home agency, or some other place, and they'll cross-check and say, yes, this is the right person, or no, this doesn't match. I might also have a remote handler communicating with me via an earpiece who is using audio and visual streams. That might be from a tiny camera I have on me, it might be from the CCTV cameras nearby, there might be a third person taking the footage, and they might be using that to additionally verify who you are. Or there might be tiny iris implants, or invisible skin tattoos, or microchips under the skin of your hand, or a myriad of ways in which the uniqueness and validity of your identity can be established. Now, this is all very nice and very space-age and very technologically advanced, 
But tech can and does fail. The internet goes down, or you can be in a place where it's just not available, and you can end up losing all of your devices for endless reasons. Even an implant can be found and removed. So let's say you suddenly find yourself in a dicey situation, perhaps you're among hostiles, far from home, having the absolute last resort of a call response validation protocol, a phrase to say, to which someone can respond. This could be the difference between suddenly turning enemies into friends or ending up just another anonymous star on the wall back home at headquarters. Quite however you end up in a scenario of providing such a code phrase to someone else, if they successfully produce a second part of this linguistic handshake, then you've both covertly established your identities. And if they look at you like you've lost your mind, or they produce the wrong phrase, you can make good your escape, or pretend that what they said was fine whilst now secretly plotting to assassinate them or whatever it is spies actually do in these circumstances. Maybe they text home or something, I actually don't know. If you listen to Enclair, if you work in espionage, maybe you're a spy master, I don't know. If you feel like sharing the proper protocol for a failed walk-up validation, drop me an email, I'd love to know. Moving on, another similar use of code phrases is in conveying critical, pre-arranged information. You see this often in films, so an agent might send a communication to their handler saying, The blackfish has flown north. And this might actually mean that the enemy country has started testing weapons, or, as we'll see later, if the message comes from an embassy and arrives with a clandestine services operative, it might mean that someone has some valuable information to pass on. Now these examples all sound very dramatic, they've all come from the world of spies and what have you, but actually we use codes all the time. So sometimes I might say to my partner, there's some postprandial cocoa-based sustenance, and by phrasing it in a way that the children won't understand, I can let him know that there's chocolate cake in the fridge for after dinner. Or, in broken French, I sometimes say, Maman voudrait un moment de jour. Basically, Mummy would like a moment, please. And at this point, the children get distracted, and I go have a mindfulness moment of necking dime bars in the blissfully dark and peaceful pantry. Or if we're disagreeing about how to respond to something that one of the kids has done, but we want to maintain an illusion of being a well-oiled parental management unit, we use the code phrase, Jim's dad. Which means, let's pause, calm down, and discuss this away from little ears. So, essentially, all languages are actually codes. If you speak the language, it just happens that this code is transparent to you. You mentally possess the code book necessary to understand it. But if you don't happen to speak that language, the code is opaque to you and you need someone to translate it. So in the case of codes created for cryptological reasons, there will be something like a codebook, whether this is physical or memorised, and you can even combine both artificial codes, where you switch certain words or phrases for other words or phrases, and, as an added layer, you can then produce the whole thing in an unusual language that is not spoken by many people. This happened in the case of World War II with the Code Talkers, but we'll save them for another episode. Compared with codes, ciphers work at a finer level of granularity. So instead of replacing whole words or phrases, the individual letters or sounds within the word are substituted for something else, or they're scrambled up. So in really simple ciphers, you might just move every letter on one place. So cat, C-A-T. T would become D-B-U. Or you might switch every letter of your plain alphabet for a symbol. 
kids do this at school all the time. But in the modern era, you might decide that you're going to use a whole mix of stuff. So A could be that laughing, crying emoji. B could be the number five. C could be the question mark. D could be some symbol you've made up and so on until you've created a whole cipher alphabet. So your plain alphabet is the normal alphabet as it stands. Your cipher alphabet is everything you're going to substitute your letters with. You then use your cipher alphabet to turn your plain text, that is your unencoded message that's easily read, into your cipher text. And it looks like a whole string of basically nonsense. In doing this, you have encrypted or enciphered your message. To decrypt or to decipher the cipher text, the recipient needs the key. Or in other words, they need to know what each of the symbols means so that they can turn the cipher text back into a plain text. So how do you go about cracking codes and ciphers? Well, spies and other operatives might concentrate on trying to intercept or steal the key, if it's a cipher, or the codebook, if it's a code. By contrast, code breakers try to retrospectively reconstruct the key or the codebook based on clues in and around the ciphertext or the code. And just for those of you who haven't listened to the Welcome Waffle episode, this podcast's very name also uses some cryptological nomenclature. So en clair is French for in clear. Colloquially, it's used to mean something like in simple terms or speaking plainly. In cryptographic parlance, however, it actually means to send a message plain text so to send it unencoded or unenciphered. By contrast, if you were to send the message encoded or enciphered, you would say that you were sending it en chiffre. That is, you would say that you were sending it in numbers or in ciphers. So, that's the terminology down, but don't worry too much about trying to remember it all now. I'll keep regularly glossing it as we proceed until hopefully it becomes a thorough part of your growing espionage lexicon. In any work on cryptography, cryptanalysis, cryptology, it's crucial to note that everything that ordinary people like you or I, everything that we know about applied cryptography and cryptanalysis, that is, real codes that have been created, used in the field, and then cracked by adversaries, everything we know is largely historical, outdated even, versus modern methods and standards. And there is much even from history that is still kept under a very dark cloak of secrecy. And when you think about it, on reflection, that's pretty unsurprising. Extremely strong ciphers and codes are invaluable beyond measure for conveying ultra-sensitive information and intelligence. And at the same time, successful methods of cryptanalysis are invaluable beyond measure for intercepting and decoding such messages from others. We'll see this over and over again as this mini-series progresses. The secrecy around cryptography is layers deep. So the diplomatic and military value of both being able to create good codes and crack good codes is incalculable. And the work of a gifted cryptanalyst or cryptographer is beyond price. Such people and their achievements and breakthroughs are therefore generally kept well out of the public eye. In some cases, their work or some of the information around it may eventually be partially or fully declassified, as we'll see later on with some of the cases that we look at in this particular story, 
but this will often be long after their death when the revelation of such sensitive information can no longer be leveraged against the country or the individuals in question. And then, at long last, that codemaker or breaker may finally receive some recognition for all they have done. But even then, their work may be so advanced or so sensitive or so controversial that the records are still kept firmly under wraps. So if you are thinking of doing cryptology for the glory, you couldn't pick much worse since there will be the exact opposite of fame in your lifetime. And for the amateur cryptologist who merely enjoys the subject and enjoys reading about it, pretty much everything the ordinary person can reasonably learn about the field is only a partial picture anyway. And it's already substantially out of date. But enough of all the waffle, let's actually get stuck in depth into some real-life examples of secret communications and all the many ways we've found of hiding messages for others to find, because all of these come up in the story of Enigma as well. So far, I've said a little bit about one way of sending secret messages, making it inaccessible, so that even if it is intercepted, the person who's managed to get a hold of it can't understand it. And this can be done through codes where we substitute whole phrases for a single word, like broken arrow to mean, oh God, someone has stolen one of our nuclear submarines. Or through ciphers where we substitute letters or sounds in the words for other symbols or other letters. Of course, for extra security, you could combine the two. You could create a code phrase like broken arrow and then encipher it as well using some sort of cipher alphabet. And there's more, but I'm going to come back to this in a bit because it will lead us, finally, to Enigma. Before we get that far, though, there is another easier way to hide communications. You literally hide them. This strategy is known as steganography. Not a kind of dinosaur. This comes from the Greek steganos, meaning covered, and graphene, meaning to write, or in other words, it's writing that you've somehow hidden. It's covered. People literally can't see it. Rather wonderfully, and this is one of those asides that I go into, but I think you'll enjoy it. The term seems to date back to 1499. So we're going to meet Johann Trithemius, a German Benedictine abbot and polymath. It's like everyone was polymaths back in the 1400s. Anyway, during the German Renaissance, he was a lexicographer, cryptographer and occultist. The three things you have to be back then. Anyway, Trithemius created a polyalphabetic cipher. We're going to talk about monoalphabetic and polyalphabetic ciphers in a bit, but he created a polyalphabetic cipher, which he published in his book, Polygraphia. Polygraphia is sometimes cited as the first published work on cryptography, but more to the point, for steganography, he also published a three-volume book called, somewhat unsurprisingly, Steganographia. Of course, you have to remember that he was essentially coining the word, or at least this new meaning for it, so the title alone wasn't a giveaway. It wasn't like you would look at this book and be like, well, this is clearly a book full of hidden codes. This word hadn't been used in that way before. And this steganographia looked like a three-part monograph on magic. In particular, the use of spirits to communicate to others far away. You see where this is going? In 1606, a decryption key was printed for the first two volumes, thus revealing their real contents. For centuries afterwards, the third volume yielded no secrets, 
And finally, people came to believe that it was purely about the occult, that it had no deeper hidden messages. Then, in 1996, Dr. Thomas Ernst, a professor of German at La Roche College in Pittsburgh, managed to crack the ciphers in the third volume. But, though he wrote up a 200-page paper explaining the insights, perhaps because it was written in German and published in a Dutch journal, Daphne, it sank into obscurity, leaving others to believe that the third volume remained undeciphered. It was then cracked a second time in 2010 by mathematician Dr. Jim Reeds of AT&T Labs, and it was only when he went to publish the paper that he discovered that Ernst had beaten him to it 14 years earlier. Anyway, the point is, steganographia was both an example of, and a treatise on, cryptography and steganography. The brilliant thing about steganography is that there are as many ways to employ it as there are colours in the rainbow, or as you have the imagination to dream up. So I'm going to give you some examples and you'll start to see just how massive the potential is here. As long ago as 440 BCE in his book The Histories, Herodotus described how Demaratos warned the Lacedaemonians of an impending attack by writing his message on a wooden tablet and then covering the writing with beeswax. Upon receiving the tablet, the Lacedaemonians scraped off the wax, and there was the message. So it's very simple, but that is steganography. In another incident described in the same book, Herodotus explains how Histiaios shaved the head of his most trusted slave and tattooed a message on his scalp, and then, after his hair had grown back, sent him to Miletos with the aim of presenting himself before Aristagoras. I don't know who most of these names are, you should just take the general story. Basically, the message was an encouragement to Aristagoras to revolt against the Persians. Now, the benefits of this particular method, there are some. The messenger doesn't need to know the message. I mean, depending on the circumstances and the use of drugs and so forth, they may not even know that they have a tattoo on their head in the first place. This was a time before mirrors, to be fair. And if they're captured and searched, there is nothing to find unless the captor randomly decides to shave their head. But the drawbacks are also quite considerable. I mean, the message will be weeks, if not months old, by the time it arrives. Hair doesn't grow particularly quickly, and this substantially reduces its value. If the enemy learns that this tactic is in use, it's easy to check for, and it's pretty difficult to hide. The message could also be in code or enciphered, or both, but by then, you've caught the messenger, and they're at your mercy. You could torture them and see what you could get out of them. Messengers also go astray. They get sick, they get scared, they have a moral epiphany, Wait, are we the bad guys? And if you try and send a flurry of messages in a fast-moving situation, this is going to start to get really logistically awkward. Overall, then, sending secret messages across the office tattooed onto the heads of those under our command is generally a non-starter. So, what else can you do? Well, other methods include skip codes, where the hidden message is retrieved by reading the first letter of each word, or every fifth word, or every other sentence, and so on. This is sometimes called a null cipher because the ciphertext message, that is the actual bit that you want the person to focus on, is mixed in with a whole heap of non-cipher or null text designed to throw the cryptanalyst off. The downside is that it can be tricky to create a natural sounding text to go around the actual intended message and it can take a lot of null cipher to suitably drown out the actual cipher. But the bonus is that a null cipher is especially effective if you'd like to try your hand at one, 
go to the transcript of episode 5 of On Claire, and you'll find that there are no less than three Easter eggs hidden away in that particular episode. One is a steganographic message in the text, one is a steganographic message hidden at two different levels in some audio, and the third one is for you to discover. Another example is the method used by the doll woman. Real name, Velvalee Dickinson, the doll woman was a New York City dealer of rare, collectible and antique dolls. And she was also, apparently, a Japanese spy. During the Second World War, she would write up orders for and letters about her dolls, and these described quantities, designs, types, adventures, scenarios. But these letters were in reality descriptions of warships, shipyards and coastal defences, which she was sending on to Buenos Aires in Argentina. When the recipient of the letters moved, five of her letters were returned and intercepted by the FBI, who began to piece together the messages hidden in the coded language. But one needn't invent random letters to send messages. Historically, book printers used to run out of fonts for publishing books, so it wasn't unusual to find a mixture of font faces and styles all in the same page. But this meant that you could write the ciphertext in, say, italics, or use Times New Roman letters for the ciphertext and Ariel for the null cipher, and basically the person could read and pick out the actual different messages. On modern web pages, it's even easier to execute, it's invisible to the naked eye, and it's faster to detect with a computer, so you can add in transparent content, or you can underline certain letters and set the underline colour to match the page colour, so that you can't see the underline unless you basically copy and paste it into something like Word. Or you can use letters that look exactly the same as ordinary alphabet letters, but have different ASCII codes. So the letter A, for instance, you can have it in the ordinary font, or you can use a special ASCII A. It looks the same, but to the computer, it's different. Or you could implement a fractional font size difference, or you could change the kerning, or you could embed something within the HTML of the web page so that it doesn't show on the screen itself, but it is in the HTML in the background, and so on and so forth, through thousands of possibilities. But writing is not the only medium for hidden messages. Another involves music. So in classical music, if you've listened to episode 5, you'll already know this, people have hidden their names, initials, short messages to the sequences of musical notes. Other methods in more modern music have involved recording messages backwards, known as backmasking, and other music has Morse code in it. But for more on all of these things, go listen to episode 5. One thing I didn't mention in that episode, which is quite lovely, is that you can hide images in digital music files. So when the audio is rendered as a spectrogram, the graphical output reveals the hidden picture. Go read about the image in the Nine Inch Nails song, My Violent Heart. But what if you don't fancy tattooing, retailing antique dolls, or composing music? Well, how do you feel about knitting or similar handicrafts? For the creative, there is a new and massive world of possibilities here. You might tie smaller and larger knots that represent Morse code. You might tie them on a thread, and then you might sew that thread into a piece of clothing. Or you might use the colour and the pattern and the stitch counts on a scarf or a sweater, and then use this to encode information. But maybe you think these are all a bit hands-on, and you could maybe do something a bit less Jane Austen, a bit more Ada Lovelace? Well, modern steganography 
unsurprisingly, involves computers and the possibilities here, aside from the ones I've already mentioned to do with font faces and font sizes, are about as limitless as the internet and computing in general. I'm going to give you a really simple few examples. One thing that you can do is you can hide a plain text message that's in one file type as another, such as an image. So let's say you write yourself a little message in Notepad in a TXT file, you save it, and then you change the extension to JPG. The computer now thinks it's an image, but if you try and double click on it and open it, it will say, this is not a real picture. If you change the extension back to TXT and then double click it, it will open. Of course, the message itself inside could also be encoded or enciphered. You might use another skip code method inside a null cipher. Essentially, this could be as complex as you wanted it to be. Or instead of encoding a text file in a picture, you could hide one picture inside of another. So this is useful for conveying intelligence that is visual in nature. Or you could disguise an audio as a PDF or a PDF as a spreadsheet and on and on and on. And that's just the start. Steganography online can be as innovative as it is global. So there is a form of blog steganography that involves turning the message into a cipher breaking it up into thousands of fragments and posting those little fragments as comments across thousands of abandoned blogs. Part of the key involves knowing which blogs to check and how to reconstruct the message in the correct order, but the benefit is that you can access it from anywhere in the world with an open internet connection. But let's up the stakes considerably. What if you are a captive? You're about to be broadcast on TV or in pictures to the world and you are at risk of execution if the people holding you realise you are trying to convey a message of some sort. But what if this is your only opportunity to signal for help? All the methods I've just mentioned here are useless, and even words are risky. So one option that you might have left to you is movement or gesture. One famous example of live, silent steganography was Jeremiah Denton. In 1965, during the Vietnam War, Denton's plane was shot down and he was held a prisoner of war in North Vietnam for eight years. In the first year of his captivity, he was forced to take part in a live interview in which he was asked to describe how well he and his fellow prisoners were being treated. Basically, they were producing propaganda in which they wanted him to say how wonderful his captivity was and how nicely he was being treated. Denton spoke, praising the conditions and said that he was being taken good care of but at the same time he seemed to be having trouble with the bright studio lights. In fact, for those paying attention, he was blinking the word torture in Morse code. Thereby confirming for the first time that prisoners of war in North Vietnam were indeed being tortured. The same war, only two years later, in 1968, the intelligence ship USS Pueblo was captured by the North Koreans. In their communications with the US, North Korea claimed that the ship had defected to North Korea and staged photographs of the crew members in various poses, apparently looking comfortable and as if they were there of their own volition. Except that in many of the pictures, the crew were subtly giving the finger. Sometimes they were resting their hand against their face the way you did as a kid in the classroom. Don't pretend you never did this. And at other times they were sitting with their hands clasped in their laps, but with a middle finger extended on one hand. Initially unfamiliar with the gesture, the North Koreans believed the crew when they claimed that this was a Hawaiian good luck sign. 
When they found out the truth, the crew members were subjected to even more extreme beatings and torture than they had been experiencing up to that point. Eleven months later, when the US acknowledged that USS Pueblo was indeed a spy ship, apologised for the incident and promised not to spy any further on North Korea, the crew was released. But the capture of USS Pueblo was a devastating blow for other reasons. The North Koreans were able to reverse engineer some of the cryptographic equipment on the ship, and this gave them access to some US communications. But the Americans and their wars of the 1960s and 1970s do not have a monopoly on incredibly courageous captives risking their lives to hide messages in plain sight. Another example, another war, another set of prisoners. But this time it's World War II, the prison is in Germany, and the prisoners are women. Ravensbrück was the largest Nazi concentration camp for female prisoners of war during World War II. It opened in 1939 and from 1942 until it closed down three years later in 1945, experiments were carried out on some of the prisoners. I can't actually go into details about this because honestly, I've read it, it is utterly harrowing. I wouldn't be able to speak through it. It's enough to say that some of the women died horrific deaths, Others were executed after the experiments on them had run their course, and those who survived were permanently damaged and traumatised. It's a horror of a kind. I find it incredible to think that humans are even capable of. These women came to be known by both prisoners and guards as Kaninchen, that is, rabbits, and their plight very quickly garnered them a huge surge of sympathy and compassion from the other prisoners. A group of four Polish rabbits, Wanda Wojtasik, Krysia Cic, and sisters Janina and Kristina Ivanska decided that something needed to be done to reach the outside world. While they were aware that the existence of the concentration camps was widely known, they felt sure that the sadistic experiments being conducted on women at Ravensbrook would not be common knowledge, as the SS seemed extraordinarily keen to keep the rabbits quiet. Letters from prisoners to their families were heavily censored by the SS, so the women had to figure out a way to deliver the message to the outside world without being caught. All four women had been scouts, and they knew that it was possible to hide messages using lemon juice, milk, or onion juice as invisible ink. But as food was strictly rationed and mostly consisted of bread or watery soup, they had access to none of these things. Christina suggested that they could try using the one substance they all had access to on a daily basis, urine. They could dip a stick in urine and use it to write, and the urine would become invisible to SS sensors as soon as the paper dried. The recipients then simply had to apply gentle heat to the letter to view the secret message, so they could run a hot iron over the surface of the paper, and this would char the iron-rich substances and turn the ink brown. But the classic problem, how do you convey the key to your recipients? How would the rabbits alert the recipients of the letters that they contained secret messages written in invisible ink? You can't just put it there openly in the writing itself, like, hey, put an iron over this, because then the SS will know. Now, as a child, Krisha loved to read adventure stories with her younger brother, Wieslaw, particularly those by Polish writer Kornel Makuszynski. One book, entitled The Demon of the Seventh Form, told the story of a protagonist who sent secret messages hidden in texts. 
Lucretia drew upon the story to come up with a plan. First of all, she suggested that they should write their secret messages between the lines and in the margins of their official letters. Secondly, she suggested that in their initial attempt, which would be sent to Cretia's brother and parents, the first letter of each line should spell out List Mochem. This translates to Letter Written in Urine. Given that Vizlav also enjoyed Cornel Makachinsky's stories, she hoped that he would spot and recognise what she was trying to do. To help him along, she also made reference to the story by Makachinsky in the main body of her letter. The first secret message read, We have decided to tell you the whole truth, followed by a few short sentences about the medical experiments. Cretia's previous letters had all been written in a very structured, formal style. So when a new letter arrived to the Chich residence in Lublin early in 1943, Vizlav immediately spotted the reference to the book and noted that it seemed strangely out of place. Along with his parents, Tomasz and Maria Chich, Vizlav managed to figure out that he needed to string together the first letter of every line. But the lower half of the letter was rubbed out, which meant that Krisha's message seemed to read something like, wet the letter. They duly sprinkled some water over the paper, but this had the unfortunate effect of making the message only briefly visible before it quickly disappeared. It was enough, however, for them to realise what Krisha was trying to do. So to prevent future messages being lost, they took the letter to a trusted friend who was a chemist, and he advised them to run a warm iron over future letters instead. Maria Cic, Krisha's mother, was a major in the Polish Home Army, and she was able to pass the secret messages on to stations in Warsaw and Sweden. Meanwhile, the four women at the camp began to develop their technique further, sending parts of their secret messages to each of their four families, who would then meet and put the puzzle pieces together. The family were asked to acknowledge receipt of the secret messages through various subtle means in their return letters, such as sending a coloured piece of thread or scratching the number of the letter onto a tin within a food parcel. Basically, codes. Over time, the little group of four began to expand, including Zofia Sokolska, a lawyer from Lublin, and Wojcicza Borczynska, a student from Warsaw. The letters contained vital information about specific Nazi guards who conducted or oversaw the experiments, and they listed prisoners' names and numbers, the operations that they had undergone, and surgery dates. Women who had died as a result of being experimented upon or through being executed or gassed were listed with crosses next to their names so that their families could be informed of their deaths. Much of this was later broadcast on an underground radio station based in London called Dawn Radio, SWIT. On the 3rd of May, 1944, for example, SWIT broadcasted a news item about the rabbits entitled Vivisection in Ravensbrook. In 2008, the author of the only chronicle about Ravensbrook, Sarah Helm, found that Krisha was still alive and living with her daughter, Maria Vilgat, in Lublin. Krisha was suffering from memory loss and was unable to communicate. Maria showed Sarah Helm an essay which had been written by Krisha about the secret messages. She had written, After we received sign from my family that the first secure letter had been deciphered, this dangerous game absorbed us completely. We began to work on improving and expanding our correspondence. The first improvement we made was to stop writing between the lines. Instead, we used the inside of the envelopes of the camp letters. This way we gained some extra space because we could write more densely on clean paper. It was also safer. In the first period of our correspondence, we put a successive number on each envelope so that our families in Poland could know if they were receiving all the letters we had written. 
In 2010, Krisha's daughter, Maria Vilgat, contacted Sarah Helm to notify her that Krisha was in critical condition. Krisha had, in fact, kept and carefully preserved all 27 letters, and Maria presented them to Sarah Helm. Most of them confirmed what Krisha had written in her essay, but there were some letters that Krisha had not spoken about. In one of these, Krisha wrote, Mama dear, from yesterday I am depressed and I cannot stand it. So I have to write to you my thoughts and imagine we are close and that I can feel you near to me. I feel how nice it is and I start to cry. Sometimes it is so bad I have to talk to you in my head or write or I have to start thinking about something else because otherwise I collapse. If there is any critical catalyst for code making and code breaking, it is war because everyone from president to prisoner has everything to lose. The ingenuity and courage of captives in getting information out from the very heart of a brutal concentration camp is in itself extraordinary. And for those who can bear it, I recommend that you read the book on Ravensbrook by Sarah Helm entitled, If This Is a Woman. I will not pretend that it isn't utterly heartbreaking reading, but if anyone ever had courage in the face of absolute horror, these women did. What then of the appalling regime that put those women there? How did the agents and operatives and soldiers that were part of this organised monstrosity communicate their plans, successes and losses without themselves giving away vital intelligence to their enemies? To understand this, we need to look at the different types of cryptography and then dissect Enigma, one of the most advanced mechanical ciphers ever invented. A quick recap. Cryptology is the study of encoding and decoding. Cryptographers generate or create codes. And cryptanalysts attack or break them. A plain text written in a plain alphabet is what you put in. And a cipher text written in a cipher alphabet is what you get out. Finally, there are two fundamental ways of secreting communications steganography, where you hide the message itself in some way, and cryptography, which involves hiding the meaning. And that's where we'll stay for the rest of this mini-series. As we've already seen, cryptography can be carried out through codes, where you substitute whole words or phrases, or it can be done through ciphers at the level of the letter or the sound. A message is effectively obscured, or scrambled, or both, according to a particular system that is typically agreed upon between the sender of the message and its recipient. As the recipient knows the system or the protocol, they can effectively reverse it and uncover the meaning. Without access to that original protocol, anyone who intercepts the message is, theoretically at least, unable to read it. So let's look a bit more at the two major cryptographic processes, transposition and substitution. Transposition, as the name suggests, involves rearranging the letters in the original message. It's basically a glorified, and probably unreadable, anagram. The shorter the message, the easier it is to decrypt, so, for instance, it's certainly true that there is more than one way to scramble a cat, but aside from cat, C-A-T itself, it turns out that the limit is actually only five. A-C-T, A-T-C, C-T-A, 
TAC, and TCA. Of course, this is a level of transposition that even a child could work out in a few short minutes, but as the number of letters increases, so too do the potential combinations. Dramatically. On its surface, transposition, at least of a long enough message, might seem more secure than steganography. If someone intercepts the message, they're not guaranteed to decode it, after all. But it, too, has its drawbacks, and the classic problem that has plagued cryptographers since the dawn of the field is getting the key to the recipient securely. The key, as you may remember, is the means of deciphering the message, and in this case, it would consist of some explanation or indication of how the message has been scrambled so that the recipient can exactly unscramble it. If ever there was something worth protecting on the one hand and intercepting on the other, it would be the key to a good encryption method. For safety, of course, you would encrypt the key. But maybe you can see where this is going. Then your recipient would need the key for that encryption. So, in short, ironically, moving aside from modern public-private key encryption methods that use prime factoring and things like this, that's a whole different ballgame. So, aside from stuff like that, basically your recipient has to be able to read the key, which they can't if you've encrypted it, because they need the key. So catch 22. The next method of obscuring your message is substitution. I've already mentioned the really simple versions of this where you bump each letter of the plain text along one in the alphabet so that, for instance, Enclair becomes faux DMBJS. The sing notes, in transposition, each letter retains its identity but changes its position, whereas in substitution, each letter changes its identity but retains its position. I should add, there's no reason why you can't go a little Carly Rae Jepsen on your messages and do it all. Substitute all the letters, and then transpose them all, and then use steganography to hide the whole ciphertext in. I don't know, I mean, stick it in a picture of Elvis. Whatever makes you happy. But for now, we're going to stick with one layer of encryption at a time. There are countless historical examples of substitution ciphers being used for military purposes. Julius Caesar, for instance, used the substitution ciphers very frequently, in particular, he was fond of using what is now known as the Caesar Shift Cipher, in which he replaced every letter in the original message with the letter three places down in the plain alphabet. Shift ciphers can involve shifting as far as you like or pour down the ordinary alphabet, or indeed mapping the plain alphabet against a scrambled one. Whatever the case, you develop a system. So, for instance, we might create a cipher alphabet by turning the ordinary alphabet backwards and then starting at S. When it gets to Z, we carry on through to A until we've finished our 26 letters at T. Imagine that you've written A, B, C, D, E, F, G all the way through to Z on one line, and then underneath, exactly mirroring each letter so that they're directly underneath, you go S, R, Q, P, O, N, M, L, K, J, I, H, G, F, E, D, C, B, A, Z, Y, X, W, V, U, D. Then, for the next stage in your algorithm, you might decide that whatever the resulting ciphertext all the odd letters must be written first, so the first, third, fifth, etc. all come first, and then all the even ones are written afterwards. So essentially, you use a Caesar shift substitution first, followed by transposition. This whole process is known as the algorithm, and in our example, if we took the plain text word cats, C-A-T-S, firstly, in our new cipher alphabet, this would be enciphered as QSZA. And then if we do our transposition, so the odd ones come first and then the even ones come after, it would become QZSA. 
in a short message like that, of course, the transposition doesn't have much of an effect because there's only so many ways you can scramble it. But in a longer message, the difference would be profound. Now, if you have both the algorithm, the method, and the cipher alphabet, it is possible to firstly reverse the transposition process and put the letters back into their correct places, and then decipher the message to reveal the contents. But if you only know the algorithm, that the letters have been substituted and that they've been transposed, even if you know I've used a Caesar shift of seven, unless you have access to the cipher alphabet itself, you're going to find it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to crack the code. This is because the cipher alphabet could have been scrambled in an almost infinite number of ways. So for simplicity, I picked reversing it, and it would be an obvious thing to try if you were attempting to crack the code. Similarly, it would be sensible to try the alphabet straightforward and see what happens if you use it with a shift of 1, and then a shift of 2, and then a shift of 3, until you've tried all 25 possibilities. But imagine I'd taken a minute more and scrambled the cipher alphabet instead, so instead of doing it backwards, I literally mixed it all up. One method of reproducibly weakly scrambling is to start the cipher alphabet with a pre-agreed keyword or key phrase. We could use onclair, for example, and then continue the rest of the alphabet in order afterwards, making sure no letters were repeated. This cipher alphabet would run E-N-C-L-A-I-R, and then you continue the alphabet S-T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z, B-D-F-G-H-J-K-M-O-P-Q. And the letters that are missing later on are the ones that have already been used at the start in the word onclair. Of course, instead of the rest running on in order, I could scramble everything from S onwards as well. But the thing with this is the more I do scrambling, the more I mix it up, the more I then have to pass on this method to my recipient. It's the classic issue. I've got to get the key to them so that they can then make an identical cipher alphabet to decode the message with. For the purposes of this example, let's imagine I don't bother scrambling the rest. I just keep it as it is. The recipient could then reconstruct the cipher alphabet I've used now just by knowing the key phrase, onclair. They would write that out, fill in the rest of the alphabet afterwards, and they've already got the cipher alphabet. But again, how do you get your keyword or key phrase to the recipient without just telling them it and possibly having that information intercepted? Well, instead of the keyword or key phrase, you might give them three digits. That might be the page, sentence and word number of some pre-agreed book. Perhaps that book might be whatever is number seven on that day's bestsellers list. Or you might send them a timestamp which relates to a word in a pre-agreed song, or a longitude to cross-reference with a pre-agreed latitude which then identifies a specific street name. Whatever it is, there are any number of ingenious ways of conveying to the recipient the intended key without simply telling them Though again, in all cases, you must communicate to them that system, if not the key itself. And whatever the chosen sentence, or phrase, or word, this then becomes the key at the start of the cipher alphabet, or at the end, or ten letters in, or whatever the system is that you've both agreed on. This all tends in one direction, randomising the cipher alphabet in some way that can be flawlessly reproduced by the recipient. And just how many ways are there to randomise a mere 26 letters of the alphabet? Brace yourself. You can create 400 septillion randomised cipher alphabets. Not 400 billion, or trillion, or quadrillion, or quintillion, or sextillion. 400 septillion. 
That is a four with 26 zeros after it. Or in common parlance, a lot. Imagine you decided that you didn't just want the 26 letters of the alphabet, you also wanted the numbers zero to nine. And maybe you also want both upper and lower cases as well. So you've got your 26 lowercase and your 26 uppercase and your 10 numbers. And then you decide, yeah, I'd also like some punctuation. Suddenly, you're not randomising 26 characters, you're randomising more than 60. And this exponentially increases the possibilities of randomization. So, as I said, you intercept my enciphered messages, you work out my algorithm, you discover I'm using a Caesar shift, you even know that I'm just employing a basic 26-letter cipher alphabet that's been scrambled in some way, despite having the enciphered message and the algorithm and all of this information, you would still find it extremely difficult to decrypt my code. What you're missing is the key, and the key in this case is the cipher alphabet that I've used. Without it, it wouldn't even help you to know that my code is shifting seven letters along, because if the cipher alphabet is scrambled, what is it shifting from and to? In different words, Caesar shifts with randomised cipher alphabets are pretty easy to create and extraordinarily difficult for the average person to crack. And for centuries, we thought that this type of substitution cipher, the monoalphabetic substitution cipher, was essentially unbreakable until we abruptly discovered that it wasn't. If creating a good cipher is tricky, then cracking one is somewhere between the agony of genius and the tranquility of madness. One must be part linguist, part mathematician, part psychologist, and these days, it really doesn't hurt to be part software coder, too. For cryptanalysts, that is, the code breakers, their code-making nemeses, the cryptographers, are bound by some basic principles, and these include consistency and replicability. They must apply their own algorithm the way that they've said they will, and, generally speaking, the recipient must be able to replicate that process in reverse to extract the hidden plaintext. But this very principle of having an encryption algorithm is a double-edged sword. Properly applied algorithms produce consistent, repeatable patterns. And patterns are exactly the weak point that the cryptanalysts look for when trying to crack codes. Psychologically, for instance, we might look for patterns in behaviour. Like when trying to create a random-looking cipher alphabet for the first time, plenty of people literally type out the QWERTY keyboard layout because, to them... This seems random. It couldn't be less random. Or we might note that the intercepted messages always start with Hi! and end with Love you, X, as in a kiss. This immediately gives us nine letters of their cipher alphabet if they've used a monoalphabetic substitution cipher. But this would require case-by-case -case knowledge, and there are bigger patterns that we can tap into. Cryptanalysis really only began once scholarship in several key disciplines was sufficiently sophisticated, so mathematics is pretty obvious, statistics, linguistics, and the surprising one, theology. Arab theologians who were interested in establishing which statements in the Quran were attributable to the Prophet Muhammad carefully studied etymology, sentence structure, and letter frequency. 
In essence, they were actually attempting an early form of authorship attribution by trying to determine whether certain texts were consistent with the linguistic patterns of the prophet. Now, it's not clear precisely who first realised that letter frequency could be exploited to break ciphers. The earliest written description of this form of cryptanalysis is by a scientist in the 9th century, Al-Kindi. Al-Kindi appears to have published some 290 books on topics ranging from medicine and astronomy and linguistics to mathematics and even music. Remember what I said about everyone being a polymath? Anyway, one book entitled A Manuscript on Deciphering Cryptographic Messages was only discovered in 1987. In it, Al-Kindi carefully described his method as follows. Step 1. Determine the relative frequency of each letter of the alphabet through examining a large sample of texts in the relevant language. Step 2. Examine your ciphertext and calculate the frequency of each letter within the ciphertext. Step 3. If you assume, based on your analysis of a large sample of texts, that the most common letter in English is E, and you see that the most common letter in your ciphertext is X, you can assume that X is likely to be the substitute for E. Amazingly, this breakthrough was huge. Instead of having to manually try 110 zillion possible cipher alphabets one by one, cryptanalysts could essentially jump to frequency analysis to at least get them started. Even if some letters mapped across incorrectly, enough might still be correct to identify some partially deciphered words, and as the errors in these words were corrected, the rest of the cipher alphabet would gradually be filled in. In other words, patterns in the orthography of language itself allow the cryptanalyst to induce parts or possibly all of the cipher alphabet and crack the code. Now, this method isn't perfect. Imagine that the plain text was in English, but included references to numerous Polish surnames, or even quotes from some other languages. This could throw the frequencies off radically. Or if the message is very short, just a few words long, there simply won't be enough data to generate a meaningful frequency list. And if it's both short and contains non-standard words for that language, then you can just forget it because frequency analysis will be close to useless. This said, there are still possible tiny cracks in the cipher into which one might crowbar one's intellect and attempt to lever a gap big enough to get in. So for instance, one might focus on just three of the most frequent letters and then look at the letter ordering. Most English words contain vowels, for instance. Some consonant clusters simply never occur. Some consonant clusters that do occur, like ng, will almost always prefer the end of a word and will never appear at the start. Through a long set of rules and an exhaustive process of elimination, you can strike in certain possibilities, strike out others, and formulate possible and probable solutions. But, as the monoalphabetic substitution cipher came under attack from frequency analysis, the cryptographers fought back. Oh, they said, so you're looking at the words and guessing where things go? Well, what if you can't tell where one word ends and another starts? Removing spaces and replacing them with other characters is no different than replacing the letter A with the letter B, after all. Indeed, the space can even be one of the substitutions. You might just decide to always write T as a space, and always write the space as E. And in so doing at a glance, the ciphertext would appear to be full of individual words, but we would inadvertently be seeing them as starting and ending in all the wrong places. But you can also analyse the frequency of spaces no differently than you can analyse the frequency of letters, so this is basically no less secure if the cryptanalyst knows to check for it. 
Again, the cryptographers fought back. Well, they reasoned, if you are using counting as your way in, then let's mess up your figures. And they began to introduce nulls. This is symbols or characters that represented nothing, but were simply there to thwart efforts at frequency analysis. With every advancing step, however, the algorithms for applying ciphers grew ever more complex, and the likelihood that a poor, tired human enciphering messages lasting at night at the end of a long day might make a mistake and garble some part or even the whole message grew ever greater. Inevitably, as war and commerce became industrialised and science and engineering advanced, we began to turn to technology to help us. We wanted codes to be difficult enough that people couldn't crack them, but easy enough that we could produce them accurately over and over again. And technology is a fantastic way of achieving this outcome. Like all our efforts in code making, historically this technology started out charmingly simple. So one example is the Caesar Shift coin or the Caesar Shift medallion. This is a small disc with a rotating centre. The outer edge of the coin has one alphabet or set of symbols engraved around it, and the rotating centre has another alphabet or set of symbols engraved around it. And you get a message, and the centre disc is turned to some pre-agreed setting, lining up these two alphabets against each other with a shift of, say, five, and you can quickly refer back and forth between your medallion and your ciphertext to decode the message. It's very simple, but it is still technology to help you decode your message. In a remarkably short space of time, however, the technology leapt forward, and in a matter of decades, we progressed from little medallions to large machines. Between World War I and World War II, the Germans worked feverishly on their cryptographic techniques and created several extraordinarily sophisticated mechanical ciphering devices. Entire books have been written about all of these, and all are worthy of their own podcasts in their own right, but for the purpose of this miniseries we're going to focus on just one, and that one is the best known of all, Enigma. The origins of Enigma are somewhere between quaint and surprising. So German inventor Arthur Scherbius co-founded engineering firm Scherbius and Ritter with his friend Richard Ritter. Scherbius had studied electrical engineering and he was particularly interested in how the cryptographic techniques used in World War I could be improved using advances in technology. Enigma was Scherbius's invention and his vision for the future of uncrackable secure communications and he applied for a patent for it in 1918. To look at, the Enigma machine was, frankly, unremarkable, even a little ugly. Far from looking like a machine that contained heretofore unknown cryptographic power, it instead looked something like a cash register crossed with a typewriter. It was also heavy, it weighed around 12 kilos, and, for good measure, it was incredibly expensive to produce. Given its eye-watering price and its uninspiring appearance, it is perhaps no surprise that Sherbius was initially unsuccessful in attempting to sell Enigma either to business or to the German military. But events in the wider world triggered an unexpected chain of events that would eventually work in Sherbius's favour. In 1923, at the same time that an unknown individual by the name of Adolf Hitler was in prison for a failed coup in Munich, the publication of Winston Churchill's The World Crisis alerted the Germans to the fact that British cryptographers had successfully cracked German ciphers during World War I. And this was a breakthrough which had afforded the British significant military advantage. 
the German military were forced to confront the evident failure of the security of their communications, and it was agreed that Sherbius's mechanical cipher, Enigma, represented the best chance they had to avoid making the same mistakes in future. A mere two years later, by 1925, just as the first volume of Hitler's Mein Kampf was being published, Enigmas were being mass-produced by Sherbius, both to businesses and to the military. But those he sold to the military had different internal wiring to the commercial versions he had previously put on the market. This is a crucial detail that comes back up later, so try to keep hold of it if you can. But how does Enigma actually work? There are several key elements to the machine. There's the lampboard and keyboard, the scramblers, the reflector, and the plugboard. I'll explain each as briefly as I possibly can, and as I go through, remember that cracking Enigma in the end required the cryptanalysts and scientists to mentally reverse every single one of these steps accurately. It's only in knowing the machine's complexity that you begin to appreciate the mental agility that was required to defeat it. The keyboard was, unsurprisingly, the way in which Enigma operators inputted their plain text letters. So the keys were arranged according to German typewriters used at the time, and the lamp board was effectively a display made up of little lamps. When the operator pressed a key on the keyboard, an electrical pulse would travel in through the scramblers, bounce off the reflector, travel back out, illuminating the ciphertext letter on the lamp board. So, you'd press A on your keyboard, and Z would light up on the lamp board. But what are these scramblers? Well, each Enigma housed a number of disc-shaped turning rotors. Informally, I call these scramblers all the way through. And there was a fixed-in-place reflector. So imagine, if you will, a layer cake turned on its side, with each layer being a scrambler and the base of that cake being the reflector. This encryption cake is the heart of the machine, and this is what mainly transforms the plaintext into ciphertext. Around the circumference of each scrambler are the 26 letters of the alphabet, but each scrambler is wired up in a different way, so that every scrambler within one machine is different to all of the others. But each military scrambler one is wired up in the same way as all the other scrambler ones, each military scrambler two is wired up the same way as all the other military scrambler twos, and so on. Now this stands to reason. If the scramblers in one machine were wired up differently to those in another machine, then a message encoded on one enigma could not be decoded on any other. So this would basically render the whole effort entirely useless. So it was, in short, crucial that each machine could provide an enormous range of different settings to keep the enigma encryption as secure as possible through continual changes. But at the same time, it had to be possible to calibrate all the different machines to the exact same settings as each other so that they could decrypt any messages that had been encrypted by any other. To ensure uniformity of settings across the entire theatre of war, all Enigma operators would receive Enigma codebooks containing a month's worth of daily keys and settings. The naval Enigma operators would sometimes receive several months' worth at a time because they would go out to sea and they might not come back for six months from a mission. At the stroke of midnight, the previous day settings would be discarded and the new day settings would be implemented. This continual and exhaustive method of instantiating new settings every 24 hours was crucial. 
Sometimes Enigma messages could be individually laboriously cracked, perhaps because a spy had learned enough to reconstruct parts of the message, or because the operative had been especially careless with the length, or because some unfortunate individual had been encouraged to give information, or simply because some cryptanalyst had been struck with a blinding moment of extraordinary insight and had made some headway. Through one decipherment, other messages could sometimes be partially or even fully cracked too. But changing the settings at midnight every day ensured that any weaknesses that cryptanalysts were able to exploit was temporary at best, lasting only until midnight when the new settings took effect. Back to the actual operation of the scramblers, though. They functioned just like the seconds, minutes and hours on a clock. The first scrambler, like the hand counting the seconds, turned one position every time a plain text letter was typed in, so that, crucially, even if you typed the same letter three times in a row, it would be encrypted as three different letters, because with each press of the keyboard, the first scrambler is moving on one setting. This is a crucial distinction to the Caesar shift cipher, which is, as I've said, a monoalphabetic cipher. In a monoalphabetic cipher, the same plain text letter will always be encoded to the same cipher text letters, and that's why frequency analysis is useful. By contrast, the rotating scramblers make Enigma a polyalphabetic cipher, meaning that the same plain text letter will be encoded in multiple different cipher text letters. Now, if you wanted to risk blowing your whole military operation clean out of the water in a moment of incredible stupidity, you could just keep on pressing the same letter over and over and over and get a long string of random-seeming letters back. Just like the second hand completing one rotation of the clock face, once the first scrambler has made a full rotation around all 26 letters, the next scrambler then clicks on one setting, just in the same way that the minute hand on a clock will now click forward to mark one minute. Then, once this middle scrambler has made a full rotation, the end scrambler will rotate one setting, just as when the minute hand has travelled all the way around the clock and the hour hand finally clicks forward to mark one hour. For added security, it was possible to also put the scramblers in starting at different letters. So remember that the wiring in each of the scramblers is different, but if every operative always starts the day with all three scramblers reset to exactly the same position as the day before, and the day before that, and so on, you immediately introduce the most dangerous of weaknesses. A pattern. Instead, the settings for that day might dictate that you put the first scrambler in starting at G, and the second starting at Q, and the third one starting at A, and so on. With just three scramblers, each starting at any one of 26 positions, you now already have 17,576 different possible starter settings of the scrambler system. And this is just the beginning, as we'll see in a moment. By using multiple scramblers, the problem of repeating patterns, and also patterns in language itself, like highly frequent E's and rare Z's in English, is reduced to an almost imperceptible level. Remember that frequency analysis rests on being able to count the occurrence of the same letters appearing over and over, but since this is a polyalphabetic cipher, the same letter will be encrypted as different letters over and over, and this makes basic frequency analyses useless. But let's imagine that you've gone back to that moment of idiocy and you keep continually bashing A on your keyboard for some reason, perhaps a hundred times, I don't know. And then you send this message and it's intercepted by the enemy. For 25 bashes at least, you'll have produced different letters. But after the 26th, if your Enigma machine only had one scrambler in it, then it would return to its original position and the pattern would begin again. In a 100 character message, your pattern will fully recur three times and will be cut off towards the end of the fourth iteration. 
even an absolute entry-level cryptanalyst should spot that repetition. And a good one might even be able to discern what you've done and use this to infer the settings for the whole of that one scrambler. Generally, though, military operatives sending critical messages are not that stupid. They don't only use one scrambler, and they're actually typing meaningful messages. But even if the person using the Enigma were typing a real message, let's say an intelligence report on a new weapon being devised by the enemy, if they were using just the one scrambler, should that message happen to be quite long, then this could be enough for a gifted cryptanalyst to make some sort of headway. This is because, as I've said, in this theoretical machine that has only one scrambler, after every 26th letter, this one scrambler returns to its original position, and a long enough message might contain just enough common letters and other clues to start to suggest some ways in. So, the more scramblers, the more secure your encryption, because even if you somehow slide completely off your saucer and keep hitting the same letter over and over, it will take that much longer for the pattern of encryption to repeat. With two scramblers, you'd have to type 676 letters before you've sent the first scrambler round 26 times and the second scrambler round just once, thereby completing the pattern and starting again. With three scramblers, you'd have to type 17,576 letters before you'd sent the first scrambler round 676 times, the second one around 26 times, and the third one around once. If you were to really ramp it up and put in four scramblers, you'd have to type in almost half a million letters and that would get you from the start to the end of one complete encryption cycle. Essentially, with each new scrambler, the pattern in the encryption grows exponentially larger, and as an added precaution, since German cryptographers knew that enemy cryptanalysts were looking for any patterns they could find in longer messages, they also tended to keep their messages short too. They might think, well, that kind of sounds needless, your encryption is already very good, but remember, the enemy was intercepting everything it possibly could, And a pattern might not appear in one short message, but over dozens or hundreds of messages sent during the course of a day, there might be enough text to start unpicking the encryption. However, there is a practical limitation to the scramblers. Remember that the Enigma machine was already heavy, it weighed something like 12 kilos, and it needed to be dragged onto ships, up and down mountains, into remote war encampments, and so on. More scramblers might be more effective, but there comes a point at which the sheer size and clumsiness of the machine renders it more of a hindrance than a help. So as a result, at first, three scramblers was the standard. But even for this limitation, there was a further elegant solution. As I already said, each scrambler in a set was wired up differently, but all the scrambler 1s are wired up the same, and all the scrambler 2s are the same, and so on. Sherbius made the scramblers removable so that it was possible to put them into the machine in different orders. And each machine also came with five scramblers in total. So you could pick any three of the five and also put them into the machine in any one of six distinct arrangements. If you remember, there are already 17,576 ways to align the scramblers anyway. So you start one at Q and one at A and one at C. But then this is multiplied by the six different arrangements of the scramblers that you can choose from, creating an incredible 105,456 different possible starter settings for the Enigma machine. Starting to get how complex this is? And we're not done yet. Because if all the German cryptographers encrypted all the messages in the space of one day with the scramblers in the exact same initial orientation... This would basically just create a letter-for-letter substitution that would be much easier for cryptanalysts to break. 
So the Germans decided that the best way to overcome this would be to allow the German cryptographers to randomly select different scrambler orientations for each message. And this was referred to as the message key or the indicator. But we're back at the age-old problem. How is the message key to be communicated to its recipients? The German cryptographers opted to begin every new message with a three-letter message key, and they encrypted this twice. This means that every message sent by the Germans began with six letters, and to achieve this, the cryptographers would do the following. Step one. Turn the Enigma scramblers to the initial position specified in the code book for that day. So they would use that day's day key. For instance, CBA. Step two. Choose a message key for that message. For instance, ENC for Enclair. And they would type that into the Enigma keyboard twice. So they're still using the day key settings, but they're using the day key settings to encode the message key. Step three. The twice-enciphered versions of ENC, the message key, will then light up on the lamp board. So this might become ZLTFGB. And this would be the first six letters of the message. Step four. The operative then changes their scrambler orientations to match this message key. So the first scrambler would be rotated to E, the second one to N, the third to C, and then they continue with the rest of their message. But how does the recipient determine the message key? Well, they essentially reverse the procedure. So they turn their Enigma scramblers to the initial position specified in the codebook for that day. So they use the day key. And for that day, it was CBA. They type in these encrypted six letters at the beginning of the message, which in our example were ZLTFGB. They look at the letters lighting up on the lamp board and check that it spells out the same three letters twice. So in our case, they would see ENC, ENC, light up. If they don't get two matching sets, then they know that some sort of error has occurred. And then they adjust their orientation of their scramblers to ENC and go on to decipher the rest of the message. The next key component on the Enigma machine is the reflector. Like the scramblers, the reflector is a rubber disc, but unlike the scramblers, it is fixed in place and it does not rotate. So when the operative types in a letter, that letter sends an electrical signal through the three scramblers to the reflector. As the name suggests, the reflector then bounces the signal back through the same three scramblers, but this time it goes via a different route. Now this has to be the case for two reasons. If the reflector sent the pulse back through the same route, you'd just get back out what you put in. But more importantly, the reflector is crucial for decrypting other Enigma messages. To encrypt a plain text message, you type in the letters, almost as if you're typing the message out on a typewriter, and you jot down the letters that light up on the lamp board thereby creating your encrypted output or your ciphertext. But to decrypt an Enigma ciphertext, you ensure that your machine is calibrated to the correct settings as the machine that produced the encrypted messages, and then you simply type in the ciphertext, and each time the letters light up on the lamp board, you jot down the letters that are lighting up. So each ciphertext letter will be converted back to its plaintext letter, thus revealing the underlying message. So in other words, the Enigma machine was both encipherment and decipherment as mirror processes. But there's just one more component to enhance the level of complexity yet further. On the front of the Enigma machine is a plug board known as a Steckerbrett. Imagine one of those old-fashioned telephone switchboards, except this one had only 26 sockets, one for each letter on the keyboard. The plug board is between the keyboard 
and the first scrambler, and it allowed the cryptographer to insert cables to swap some of the letters around before they entered the rotary system of scramblers. So, for instance, you could insert a cable which connected the two letters of the alphabet, such as A and B. Now, when the cryptographer types in the plaintext letter B, the electrical signal running through the machine will ensure that B follows the same pathway through the three scramblers that was the previously assigned path for the letter A. In 1932, Enigma had six plugs, which meant that you could effectively swap six pairs of letters, that is, you could swap 12. The remaining 14 letters of the alphabet would not be swapped. The combination of both scramblers and the plug board is what makes Enigma so incredibly difficult to crack, because the sheer number of possible permutations it generates is mind-blowing. In addition, the swapped letters had no underlying mathematical explanation that could be deduced, they were just chosen at random by the operator. With all of the above components in mind, the key to any message decrypted using Enigma has several vital elements. To decrypt the secret message with your own Enigma machine, you would need to know which of the 17,576 possible scrambler orientations had been chosen, which of the six possible orders of scramblers was implemented, and which of the 100,391,791,500 possible choices of plugboard switches the operator had randomly decided on. These three elements taken together create over 10 quadrillion possible settings, so that simply guessing at the right settings is basically futile. And this therefore made the code books with their daily keys almost as precious as the Enigma machines themselves. So how, then, did the battle to crack Enigma begin? As war rages across Europe, and then the world, in the next part we begin to meet the civilians, scientists, and spies who all found themselves caught up in one of the most deadly races against time in modern history. End of part one of three. This episode of Enclair was researched and fact-checked by Rebecca Jagodzinski. And it was scripted, narrated and produced by me, Dr Claire Hardacre. And it was supported by the Economic and Social Research Council, the ESRC, as part of their Festival of Social Science. However, this work wouldn't exist in its current form without the prior efforts of many others. You can find acknowledgements and references for those people at the blog, and also there you can find data, links, articles, pictures, older cases, and more besides. The address for the blog is wp.lancs.ac.uk forward slash Enclair. And you can follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore Enclair. If you like, you can follow Rebecca on Twitter at rjjagodzin. SKI. And you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Claire H. <laughs>